How, I wondered how did you begin with the Anglo-Saxons? What, you know, because I remember you wrote somewhere about you grew up in Thundersley. Yes. There was a bread and cheese hill. But was there a moment when you suddenly realised that your life for 15, 20 years, you were beginning on a trail? And you were going to be an, I should, you, you're probably more of a Mercian, aren't you, than an Anglo-Saxon? I don't know, because of your connections with um, Bruno. Like, I think probably my interest came from when I was at university. Um, had to learn Anglo-Saxon, which was rather a shock, because I thought if you studied English literature, you didn't have to do anything truly difficult. Um, but became really quite fascinated by the poetry. And... And it's a lovely thing to listen to. It is a lovely thing to listen to. Yes, please don't ask me to do it. <laughs> no. It's interesting how when I think of your books, and, and, you know, I have to say that I've spent many a happy hour in the company of Uhtred. I, I, I felt with Uhtred the sa- slightly the same way that I feel about Jack Reacher, that the baddies are going to get sorted out ultimately. Uh. And I think as, as, a, as a wonderful character, he, he's, he's been a great companion on many long reading sessions when we've, when we've been on holiday. So, I, uh, you know, I'd like to thank you for the, for the pleasure of that, really. Um, I just mind him. But I also, in a sense, wondered what were the things, going through all the various books and those lovely historical notes that you add at the end, um, what are the things that you most think of archaeologically in terms of objects, sites, locations that you bring bring that past alive? Are there some things that you think, you know, that would be an object I would like in my private museum of Anglo-Saxon finds? I'd love to have one of Uhtred's pattern-welded swords in my private collection, but I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, it was a very nice coincidence that after I described his sword, that in fact the pattern-welded sword was dug up at Bamborough Castle. And I continually get queries from people saying, is this Uhtred's sword? And did you know about it before they found it? Which I didn't. Have there been objects that have slightly put the hairs on the back of your neck on edge? I mean, I think the most exciting thing for me has been the apparent discovery of the site of the Battle of Brunenburg, which is the, the next, and I fear, the last Uhtred novel called Warlord. Um, and, of course, we know that for years and years and years there's been debate about where Brunenburg was fought. We know it was fought, but we don't know where. And you know, suggestions have ranged from County Durham to Solway Firth all over the place. But there was a consensus of sorts among historians that it was on the Wirral. And then a couple of years ago, I got an amazingly exciting email from a guy who works or leads Wirral archaeology, which says, we found it. Um, And I think they have. And I visited the site and was taken around with them. Um, And behind me, there is a knife blade taken from the battlefield they were kind enough to give me. So I'm guessing that's probably the most exciting thing I I have from a Saxon point of view. Um, And they have literally come up with hundreds and hundreds of artifacts. Um, So I think that's probably, for me, the most exciting exposure to the archaeology of the Saxon times. Because I think you've 
looked at, discussed, researched the whole idea of the location of the Battle of Ethendun, um, Eddington, as it's sometimes called. And, and have you felt as confident about that as you now feel about the Battle of Brunaberg? I don't think I was ever totally confident about Eddington, Ethendon, um, even though there's far more agreement about the location. You have to excuse me just a minute. I have. That's all right. I have a small annoying dog who just pulled oh, out. You know. like, like small annoying dogs. I did an interview with somewhere where I had a dog sat on their lap. <laughs> He's likely to end up on mine. Go feel um, me. Besieging me. Um, I mean, it seemed in, in many ways that, I mean, Guthrum, who was the leader of the great army, um, it seemed an extraordinarily precarious position to take with your back against an escarpment. Um, although, of course, there was an earthen fort up there, so he had that. Um, but there seemed to be so much agreement that Ethendon was actually fought above the white horse there that, that I, I went with it. Um, I know that I'm going to get far more arguments from people about Brunenberg. Uh, I, mean, you know, I mean, there's a strong body of opinion that it was fought somewhere close to a lay-by on the A1 in Yorkshire. Um, I think it was fought just off exit four of the M53 in Cheshire, but you know, we'll find out no doubt at the end. Because ideally, what one would like to find would be the burial sites of the people from that battle at Brunaberg. I think they have found a couple of grave pits. Um, I know of one, um, and now I'm not so sure of myself, but I think I heard that they thought they had a second location, but they hadn't got permission from the landowner to excavate. But they've certainly found one, which they think is the burial place of the high-ranking Saxon casualties. That would be that would be fantastic if the, if they found that. I mean, it would be lovely to find more out about that site, and and particularly coinciding with your book, which comes out in October, isn't it, of this year? I think yes, I think it is. Yes. And how have you ever been on an archaeological dig? Have you been? involved. I've never had that. I've always been fascinated by archaeology and I think for a long time when I was a teenager I thought I would love to be an archaeologist. It didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Um, so the answer is no. Um, I simply use whatever information I can get from them. I was talking to Sir Michael Morpurgo about a similar sort of thought and he, we were both saying that there's that idea of the pictures in your head are sometimes better than the reality that you can glimpse. And that in your writing, in a sense, you can see those pictures, you can see the axes, the arm rings and things like that. And, and does the physical evidence add something to it in a way? I think it does because I suppose if you're writing an historical novel, what you want most of, well, not most of all, but an important consideration is the authenticity of the background. Um, I mean, obviously the story is all fiction, or mostly fiction, but the background should be authentic. So seeing pictures of Viking swords, seeing pictures of whatever from that period helps that authenticity. And I was quite uh, amazed to see this ring 
which had Ailswith had me made. And I think she was Ethel Flade's niece. So she was quite an important person. Somebody will tell us if, if I'm wrong, but to see that ring with that written, and the same has the Alfred Jewell has sorted. Alfred Jewell, yes. I mean, Alfred had me made. Yeah. No, those are quite extraordinary. And I mean, I'd love that if at Bamborough they could dig up a ring with Uhtred had me made, but I don't yeah. think it's good. There was an Uhtred there, of course. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I'm descended from it. Which you is why that in your book. Did you have to do lots of research in the records? No, I did no research at all, essentially, because when I was in my late 50s, I met my real father for the first time, and his surname is Outred. Oh. Uh, on the first time I met him, he showed me a family tree, and the family tree had this character, Outred. And I'd long wanted to tell the story of how England was created, uh, because it seems to me a story that we don't know. And I say we, the English or the British, we have no idea. Um, and most historical novels have a big story and a little story. If you think of Gone with the Wind, the big story is the Civil War. The little story um, is can Scarlet save Tara? And what you do is you flip them. The big story goes in the background and the little story in the foreground. And although I wanted to tell this story of England's creation, um, I didn't have a little story. But the moment I discovered that my family had somehow held on to Bamborough right through the Viking occupation of Northern England, I thought, okay, that's my story. Um, and that was, the, that was it. I remember reading, I think in The Death of Kings, you say something like, the story of how England came to exist is a massive, exciting, noble tale. It's a very bloody tale. <laughs> and because that's part of the significance of Brunenberg. You could notionally say that on the morning that Brunenberg was fought, there was no such place as England, and that night there was. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but it's not, it's not totally out of the court. Um, and I mean, I remember, I think I had a reasonably good education in England, but as far as the Saxons went, I mean, all I think I learned about was a, probably one lesson on Hengist and Horsa, and the rest of it was Alfred's failures as a baker. Um, yes, the cakes. The cakes, and then probably had to read the unready. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Um, none of that teaches us how England came to be. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in a way that, that curve of that story begins with that Battle of Ethendon. Yes. Possibly could be seen to be find its final completion, its final act of the defeat of the Danes at, at the Battle of Brunaburg. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, and in many ways, it is Alfred's achievement because he sets the ambition, if you like, he sets the ball rolling, although he's going to die, what, 38 years before Brunaburg. Did you feel that you gradually came to have a stronger idea about Alfred from your researches, because obviously a television series has been made, you can see a kind of visualization of him, the, the problems he had with illnesses and things like that. Is, did you begin to admire him more, the more work and research you did on him? Yeah, I certainly admired him. Um, I'm not sure I liked him. Right. Uh, I mean, he's a Puritan. And uh, 
he's nothing like those great statues of him in Winchester and the, I can't remember where the other one is. Um, I mean, he was sick all his life. He collapsed at his wedding. Yeah. I mean, the usual diagnosis is Crohn's disease, which I know can be incredibly debilitating. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at his interest. He's not, he's not a natural warrior. For a start, he's too sick. His interests are scholarship, theology, education. Yeah. I mean, this is not the picture of a, you know, a male-clad warrior striding forth to battle. Um, but he's also, of course, incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Um, that is sadly rare in monarchs. Um, I think it's his intelligence that wins that war, that it will eventually unite England. And we always felt it was a remarkable thing that having won it, he then managed to get Guthrum baptised as a Christian, which for Guthrum must have been a tough moment, you know, a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool pagan having to go through it after a defeat by Alfred and being dragged off to Chippenham, was it, or somewhere? Well, yeah, but then again, for Alfred, this was a crusade. It was a religious crusade as much as it was a political or a military crusade. Um, and he seemed to take the view that once you had converted, then you were no longer an enemy, you were now a friend, and you were now part of his vision of England. Um, but of course, back then, there was, I mean, even the papacy was encouraging that rulers should convert their people. Um, I think, I can't remember which pope it was who made helpful suggestions like, put their rents up until they convert. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is, <laughs> it probably worked, it would still work. So, you know, converting the ruler. And then, of course, also there was the great pressure that if you could demonstrate to a man like Guthrum that the Christian God was more powerful than Thor or Woden, um, then the choice is pretty obvious, isn't it? Because you, you want to go on winning. And I've got a feeling that there's a certain amount of sympathy you have with some of your tougher Viking characters. Um, particularly when, as against the priests, who all seem to get a very bad deal one way and another. <laughs> Did you grow to uh, feel a particular interest in a Viking ruler in particular? Who, who do you think represented the, 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 the height of Viking rule? That's interesting. I mean, you might have to go to Eric Bloodaxe, although he's much later than Hutrin. Than, than yeah, I mean, I think I'm slightly captured by the romantic image of the Vikings. Um, and, I mean, they've had a very good press in the last 200 years. I was actually fascinated that one of the, I, I read somewhere that one of the reasons for the emergence of the Vikings as a kind of symbol was the humiliation of the Danes when Copenhagen was burnt um, by the British. And, in the wake of this humiliation, they began to look to their history to find something they could be proud of. And along came horned helmets and dragon ships. Um, by God, that worked. I wonder if I could take you to a site. Let's assume that Brunaburg is, is successful and, and uh, something happens with that. Are there any other places that you feel, if you had, if I gave you time team to play with for a couple of weeks, and we had the geophysicists, and we had any expert you like, 
Are there, are there any places that stick in your memory and thinking, oh, I would have liked to have sorted that out at some point? I think probably South Cadbury. Why? Um, well, a long, long, long time ago, I wrote three books, of which I'm still very fond, which are the stories of Arthur. Yeah. Um, and I became sort of convinced that Camelot, which was a much later name, is probably South Canterbury. Um, and I'm sure it's been excavated, but I'm equally sure that there's more to find. Would it be something you would enjoy? Would you like getting involved in the archaeology? Would we be putting it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll give you the address for the invitation to. <laughs> It'd be wonderful. I mean, I used to do a lot of walking over Wellington's battlefields. I mean, we're now jumping. Yeah. Almost 2,000 years from the Saxons. And as you know, Uncle Phil, uh, we call him Uncle Phil, Phil Harding has been working with Waterloo Uncovered. Yes, and that's um, a wonderful project. Fantastic uh, site. And, uh, yeah. The extraordinary thing is what there is to find there. Um, I mean, I can remember going to Fuentes de Nora, that little village on the Portuguese border, and walking through the ruined part of the village and finding a, the tip of a British bayonet stuck in a door. And obviously, I had, I assume, rammed it in. When he pulled it out, the tip broke off. Um, and then at a say in India, you only had to kick the furrows and musket balls came out. I mean, that's a site that simply hasn't been metal detectory. Uh, unlike, say, Waterloo, where yeah. metal has been all over it. And is there, there is to find. And is there another sharp? Because we did a, we did a time team on Sharp's Redoubt many many years ago, and um, I'm not sure we found a massive amount, but it, the history was fascinating. Is there a sharp site that, again, if I was giving you time team to play with for a couple of weeks, you'd like to take them to and, and do a bit of discovery? San Sebastian would be interesting. Um, actually, almost going a bit later, almost any of the Pyrenean battles. Um, I was walking in the Pyrenees once, and there was a musket lock just lying on the ground. We must have been there for, what, 180, 90 years. Um, there's a lot to be found, I think, on those battlefields. But San Sebastian is, a, well, one, a beautiful place. And did it Very play a critical role? In, in, in the, did it play an important role in, in, the, in the victory? Not so important. I mean, I think perhaps if I was to take your time team to one place, I'd pick Assay in India. Oh. Um, Wellington always claimed it was his proudest achievement. Um, he took on a Maratha army, which outnumbered his about six or seven to one. Um, as I said, you just kick the furrows and musket balls come out and then when he blew up the enemy guns at the end the, the remnants the fragments of those guns are still lying in the soil no one has bothered to collect um, and I was talking to a farmer there through an interpreter and he was saying that on his field where we were a lot of British soldiers had been killed and he said they were very big men huh. and I thought well, okay, we know that the average height of Wellington's men was about five foot four inches. And so I didn't take him very seriously and then discovered it had been a Scottish battalion that suffered there and died there. And Scottish soldiers were, on average, about four inches taller than the rest of Wellington's troops. So he'd been right all along. 
Um, and I think there's a lot to be discovered there. We also went up to the fortress of Gaulga, um, which is extraordinary. It's completely abandoned now, but there's still, I think it's the only breach left in the Napoleonic era fortress. And I know there's one at Fort Conception, but, but that one was actually blown up by British engineers. So it's a, it looks like a breach, but it isn't the real thing. Uh, I tried climbing the breach at Gallagher, and back then I was much younger and much fitter. Um, but it was hard work. Um, so I think I would, I would, yes, I think I'd go to the Napoleonic era and go to a couple of Wellington's battlefields. Can your team travel all the way to India? Certainly, it's definitely possible. We went over to the States once or twice. We did St. Mary's City. We did the Caribbean. Um, and, and it's an extraordinary thing to find yourself a group of British archaeologists in, in a, an entirely different environment. Uh, the Caribbean jungle, as it was around the edges of Nevis, and, and St. Mary's City was lovely. Um, and how did you get that interest in Wellington? Where did that come from? Well, that came from reading Hornblower as a, as a youngster. Uh, and I can remember reading the very last of the Hornblower books, which is Hornblower and the Atropos, and there was nothing after that. Um, so I went to the school library and got up non-fiction books about the Napoleonic Wars. I occasionally feel when I'm almost on a site that I have a kind of sympathy. I'm in tune with that period. Which of the periods that you've studied have you felt the most like this had some deep deeper meaning for you you had some connection with it you couldn't explain but well probably although it wasn't part of my research at the time was the first visit to Bambra um, and I didn't know I had a family connection with the place but Judy and I went for a vacation there we rented a, a cottage in Bambra itself and we loved it so much that we went back again the following year. And then it was about two years after that that I discovered that this is where my roots were. Um, long, long, long way ago. Um, my family was cheated out of Pamber in 1016. And about five years ago, I met the present owner of the castle. He was an utterly charming man. And I said, look, let's be honest about this. This was our place. You lot. Well, not you, but the people who were before you, they, they cheated us out of it, and it was a totally dishonest piece of, of treason. And if you had a shred of decency, and he interrupted me and said, can I get you the castle's heating bills? <laughs> of course, you can keep it. Where next, Bernard? You've, you've been to India, Wellington, Arthur, all over the Saxon, however. It, it, you know, it seems to me, if I was you, I'd be thinking, right, bring it on. Where's my next? <laughs> well, I think the next book, anyway, is going to be set in Paris. So, Oh, lovely. Beautiful. Uh, I think it's back to sharp. Uh, 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 oh, it's back to sharp. Okay. You've been resting for much too long. Absolutely. And what a one, as I said, I always felt I loved your, your characters are slightly anti-heroes. But somewhere or other, they're always going to get the bad guys. And that's incredible relief for your average person. <laughs> Just as you're always going to get the artifacts out. A final question. Do you, do you think that, um, knowing what you know about Time T, obviously we're all getting on a bit now, but there's lots of new archaeologists coming on. 
do you think there's a there would be a good reason for bringing time team back in some way what you know is would it work again now and you know how would it be sure it um so i i think it's a program that should come back i know it has a following over here in the states but uh, yeah bring it back to bring it on <laughs> bernard thank you very much indeed for this lovely chat um we'll keep a a very close eye on the happenings at the Wirral and look please do oh there there's the dog <laughs> yeah actually he deserved a show considering how much he's he trying to bring what's his you. name whiskey whiskey hello have you got yeah. another one called gin <laughs> it'd be soda wouldn't it <laughs> it's a beauty oh look at that hello whiskey hello hello <laughs> he did his best to spoil this interview so he's done a lovely job keeping us company very nice bernard thank you very much for your time so much for your time and uh best you uh in october for the new book what's that saying in 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 anglo-saxon that you end up in with the fuller red that's the one say that again with the fuller red fate is inexorable fate is inexorable Right, fate is inexorable. Okay, well, best wishes, stay well, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tim.